From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Are you ready? Let's go. I want to talk to you about togethering because I'd like to know if you'd like to do a little togethering with me. Togethering. It describes a growing appetite to share adventures with like-minded souls. We need to rediscover the value of togethering as we journey forward. And the rewards are huge when the journey is shared rather than experienced in isolation or solitude. And, you know, and there'll be problems along the way, no doubt. Every week on ReSound, we make it a point of telling you that we bring you the best audio from around the world. That is, of course, true. Would I lie to you? But today we not only bring you the best from around the world, we actually travel around the world and, needless to say, invite you to listen in. When wanderlust grabs a hold of you, there's no telling where it will take you, what it will teach you, or how it will affect you. Today, it takes us to the stands, as in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan. This story was produced by Ben Adair in February of 2001, and it's a fascinating, entertaining look at adventure, travel, and frankly, a little American hubris and naivete, because so much has changed in that part of the world. Ben was a little nervous about rerunning this piece, given what we now know about the region. But what made him nervous intrigued us. So we contacted Ben, and I asked him what he wanted listeners to know before hearing the story. I guess the most amazing thing to me is how fast a story can go stale. You know, this is a trip that (laughs) happened. It's a trip that happened in August of the year 2000. We were going around Central Asia, which, you know, the idea was to hit all the stands in Central Asia, with the only exception being Pakistan. So we started off in Turkmenistan and then went to Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and then the holy grail of stands at, at that time was Afghanistan. And this was a period in history where nobody even knew where these countries were. It's hard to imagine now, you know, with the war and and terrorism and Osama bin Laden and things like that. But this was uncharted territory, and we were just all very, very excited to go to these countries that nobody else knew about. We'll talk more with Ben Adair later in the show after you hear his story, The Stands, in two parts. In part one, imagine a random group of Americans stuck together on a bus for hours and days on end looking for adventure and perhaps a little danger, and you'll get the feel of this sort of foolhardy adventure. Close your eyes and think of a globe. Put your imaginary finger on imaginary San Francisco. Now, with your other hand, spin the globe exactly one half turn. You're in Turkmenistan. Uzbekistan is an inch northeast, Kazakhstan an inch north of that, Kyrgyzstan over to the right, Tajikistan down. Now, actually getting to Central Asia, that's a little different. So far, uh, everything is fine, except that two pieces of luggage are missing upon arrival in Moscow. Naturally, there's no indication that they will ever turn up in the Eastern Hemisphere. But Before you can even get to Central Asia, there are a number of tribulations, tests if you prefer, that you have to get through. It's a little like Aeneas descending to the underworld, except instead of tricking the haunted boatman and subduing the three-headed dog, you have to make it through the Moscow airport. Well, I mean, if there had to be a casualty, I'd rather that it be luggage than people. So I think, all things considered, this sucks, but it's not the worst-case scenario. This is Ted Rall, nationally syndicated political columnist, cartoonist, radio talk show host. 
This whole trip, the whole idea of Stan Trek 2000 was his. He's our guide, our leader. His sidekick Tracy, the enforcer. We have designated Ted as our fearless leader, and he will take care of that. Because it's overwhelming. When you're trying to talk to somebody, then you've got a translator, then you've got someone else saying, well, what about try this, do that. We scream weakness, we scream American, and we scream, please come kill me. Last time I was in Turkmenistan, my friend was held up at gunpoint, emptied of $100, and reduced to tears like a real wuss. That was Turkmenistan, it was the Turkmeni militia. But as a general See, rule, this isn't even in the stands yet. Moving, this is still uh, on the way. Customs. Don't go to the bathroom without telling me or Tracy, really. Don't go to the bathroom. Uh, there's 24 people. At any given time, there's been five people taking a dump. To understand our fearless leader, you have to know two things about him. The first is that he gave that title, our fearless leader, to himself. He just kind of assumed it. The second is that this, Stan Trek 2000, is going to be his big chance to prove it. To lead us all through the most dangerous part of the world and come home a hero. Motorcades down Broadway, ticker tape parade, our undying honor, loyalty, and a willingness to follow him anywhere. That's what these next three weeks are supposed to be. So we cross the tarmac, the river sticks, and we get on our plane. A few more hours and we're there. Hades, Central Asia, Turkmenistan, Ashgabat. Stan 1, Turkmenistan. So we have our first injury of the trip. Uh, Glenn, why don't you tell me what happened? What happened was I was a damn fool. Did you ever think it would go down like this? Well, it's a funny thing. You know, I take a lot of these trips and I, I do crazy things. Usually I'm by myself, but I guess when you get in a group, maybe you start to uh, show off a bit, you know? I paid the price. We've been in Turkmenistan less than 24 hours when Glenn smashes his head on the diving board at the Hotel Nisa. He was doing backflips for Jerry, who is quickly establishing herself as Stan Trek's most wanted. She's 22, sexy, worthy of backflips, frankly. Glenn gets a neat three stitches in the back of his head. In Turkmenistan, everything is either very old or very new. In the morning, before Glenn smashes his head, we all go to the Tolchuchka Bazaar, a massive open-air market in the middle of the desert. Women wear bright purple and gold gowns, men flowing white tunics and trousers. Booths sell grapes, Adidas sweatsuits, jewelry, tires, Puma cross trainers. It's like Safeway and Target and Track Auto all combined, only it's outside 120 degrees. It's dusty, and I can't understand a word anyone is saying. I stumble around in the heat until I find my way to Tolchuchka's highlight, the carpet market. The most beautiful oriental rugs are draped everywhere, piled messily on top of each other in the dust. The colors are overwhelming. For a moment, I forget the jet lag and the heat and the noise and the color. I buy three carpets from a Turkman who speaks French with me. He tells me that after the government banned learning languages, he was forced to take an expensive private tutor. I don't know if I believe him, but it works and I don't bargain as hard as I should. Three rugs, 300 bucks U.S. cash is not a good deal at Tolchuchka. That evening, the sun still bright, a group of us take the tour bus to the old city Nisa, ruins of the only empire Rome could not defeat. Like most of modern Turkmenistan, it's dust, and for a while I sit in a dark room and listen. With the desert all around me, I hear nothing. No wind, no people, no life at all. 
There's only the slight cracks and creaks of a structure resisting 1,000 years in the sand. Eventually, I get up and go outside. I share cigarettes with two Turkmen shading themselves behind a wall. The next morning brings Turkmenistan's new, construction cranes and impossibly huge government projects. On every building, every corner kiosk, hang pictures of President Saparmurat Niyazov, a.k.a. Turkmenbashi, the supreme hero of all Turkmen. Turkmenbashi makes Saddam Hussein's penchant for portraits look reasonable. Statues, paintings, photographs, murals, serious Turkmenbashi in a highly decorated military uniform. Loving Turkmenbashi smiles wearing a maroon sweater. We drink Turkmenbashi vodka. We photograph this massive tower rising from the desert floor. On top stands, guess who? Arms raised, six times actual size and 24 karat gold. The statue rotates during the day as Turkmenbashi presents the sun to his people. Leaving Ashgabat, we see Turkmenbashi's real power, the police state. The situation is that you experienced your very first militia checkpoint. Now, you guys may be under the false impression that passing borders in Central Asia is a very easy thing because you came into Turkmenistan relatively easily. Please do not be under the mistaken impression that we will get off so easily in the future. There is no freedom of movement in Turkmenistan or in any of the stands. No freedom of speech, no Bill of Rights. Ted tells of people beaten, robbed, held for weeks with no recourse. Crossing the Karakum, Turkmenistan's Black Desert, we pass dozens of checkpoints. The soldiers stop all cars. They board all buses. We drive for hours. We make few stops. We have an itinerary, damn it, and we're sticking to it. The bus's air conditioning fights a valiant but ultimately doomed effort against the Karakum's heat. The temperature hovers around 130 degrees. Stand 2, Uzbekistan. Fifteen hours after leaving Ashgabat, we reach the border, a lonely outpost in the middle of nowhere. It's just after midnight, and the soldiers manning the checkpoint are drunk and tired. Twenty-three Americans crossing into Uzbekistan overwhelms them. We walk right through. It's like, here we are, hanging out, you know, at the Uzbek border, and the sky is enormous. I've never seen so many stars in my life. That's Judy, Ted's wife. It's late, everybody's sleepy, and, well, Judy's kind of pissed off. After the easy crossing, some of our fellow stand trekkers are complaining that this whole thing is just too easy, not dangerous enough. I mean, you know, if we want, I could tell Ted, let's, let's engineer a bad experience. Let's get someone strip searched and body cavity searched and then be like, well, I got your experience. <laughs> you know, it's like they almost want that stuff to happen. Right, right. Why well, Our lives, I guess, are too boring and empty. America's too safe. This is the ruling class of America going to a third world country and... But then you know what? If they were harassed, they would go back and talk about how horrible it was and how backwards and how oppressive. If you can't, these poor people can't win. <laughs> For me, it's not that there's no danger. I mean, the signals lurking in the food and water freak me out plenty. It's more that I'm not really feeling it. I'm not connecting to the people, the places. I mean, this is Central Asia. Where the hell am I? I'm tired. It's midnight, 110 degrees. I want a bed, a nice bed. There are very few nice beds in Central Asia. It is, it is only the second day after all. It feels like we've been here forever already. 
So tell me your name again. Mm-hmm. Hello, my name is Lola. I'm from Bukhara. Uh, I don't remember getting into Bukhara, Uzbekistan later that night. But the next day is beautiful. I wander into the center of town where, outside an old madrasa, an Islamic school built in 1417, I meet Lola and her sister Nadia. Do you understand? <laughs> very good, very good. Um, I'm afraid that I make mistakes. <laughs> In Uzbekistan, like all of Central Asia, there is nothing to do. Lola's a student, most young people in Uzbekistan are, and for fun, she waits for tourists and then shows them around town. Already I've met a lawyer, an engineer, and a teacher who all do the same thing. It makes hanging out with Lola and her sister a little uncomfortable for me. I mean, picture it, American guy being led around by two young and cute local girls. Already, sex has become a hot topic on the trip. Every hotel bar teems with prostitutes. Sex confronts you in the lobby, in the hallway outside your room. Mysterious phone calls at 3.20 in the morning. Back on the bus, Carlos told me this story. There were maybe around 10, 12 men sitting around the disco. And I would say maybe 15 to 20 women dancing. Perhaps another dozen women sitting around also. So it was mostly women at the disco? Beautiful, beautiful women. They were all young, you know, college student type. A girl, she approached me and she just kind of fluttered her eyelashes and, and, and pointed to my private regional area. <laughs> and these women were gorgeous. And she, she asked me if I wanted to get some help in that area. And I, I said no, and she started out with 200, and I kept saying no, and she went down for two girls, $20 each. $20 each? Each. So basically it would have been $40 if I wanted both girls. That's not a bad price. <laughs> I guess. So. How, did you, how were you ever able to turn that down? It's a matter of principle. Yeah, anyway, let's just say that principles become negotiable in Uzbekistan. I mean, when an average office worker makes around $20 a month, even a little prostitution goes a long way. The guys on our trip, half the guys on our trip, take advantage. So this morning when I woke up and some people from my group introduced me to a local girl, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I was skittish. Later, meeting Lola and Nadia walking around town with them is great. They're obviously not for sale, but... It's a little weird. I really don't know what to think. But beautiful Uzbekistan quickly becomes my favorite country. The people are so friendly and generous. A boy offers free of charge to hook two of our group up with prostitutes way out in the suburbs. A few people are actually invited for the much sought after meal with a local family. After showing me all over Bukhara, sharing their bread and grapes, taking me to the walled fortress near the center of town, Neither Lola nor her sister will accept even cab fare back to their house. I try to buy them lunch. They say they're not hungry. Ice cream? Nothing. They ride with me back to the hotel and get embarrassed, apologize when the driver hits me up for a U.S. visa. All Lola and Nadia want are photos. They write me their address and I promise to send them. When they see my Polaroid, their eyes light up. They pose and they're beautiful. They have this regal air. I watch them as I clutch the pictures and walk away from me. They laugh and bump into each other. They disappear across the street. The next day, we're gone too. 
on the road to Samarkand. What starts as another blistering hot and therefore slow day quickly turns pointed. Central Asia has always been a land of conquests, Alexander crossing the Oxus River, Genghis Khan on his way to Arabia. The group turns on me first, trying to get me to confirm a love affair with the sisters Lola and Nadia, but when there's nothing to tell, they turn on Frank. We pry from him the story of his rendezvous with Nozima late last night. It's a pathetic story, really, yet one he takes great pride in. They meet after dinner. He gets her drunk at the hotel bar and then sneaks her past the secret police to his room where they share some kind of sexual encounter. He won't say he didn't have sex with her. Instead, he makes lame innuendos so as not to lose face. But it begs a question, one we've been avoiding the whole trip. Somehow, this tour has started dripping with sex. At one point, Ted admits he actually chose participants based upon who on the bus would hook up with whom. During one stretch, a few of us go through the entire group pairing people off. The question we've been avoiding is this. Given man's propensity to covet thy neighbor, can you have sex in Central Asia without harming the Central Asians? Or maybe the better way to ask that is, if you are going to screw them, can you do it in such a way that it doesn't sting for too long? The debate here is between Frank and Carlos. Before we left, Frank went on the internet and corresponded with ladies in a number of different cities we'll be visiting. He says he's just trying to get to know some of the locals, but the rest of us, we think we know what he's up to. Carlos, on the other hand, makes no bones about buying sex wherever it's available. Who's more exploited? The woman giving up for free, naively hoping for love, happiness, I don't know, a visa maybe? Or the hooker who knows exactly what's going on? It's a tough question. It's tough to ask and even tougher to answer. Maybe you can't. Maybe you have to deny attraction. Deny man's propensity to covet thy neighbor when you travel. Deny part of being human. But on this hot day in Uzbekistan, as I said, on the road to Samarkand, no one is answering it or even trying to because nobody's asked. A woman gets mad, outraged even, as she listens to Frank's story, but by the end of the day, she's apologizing to him, apologizing to all the men on the bus. I overreacted, she says, fanning herself. I don't know what came over me. Maybe it was the heat. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, it was a mistake. Late in the afternoon, the bus pulls into Samarkand. We all pile out at the Registan, this incredible complex of mosques linked by 300-foot facades covered in tiny mosaic tiles. It's an architectural marvel, deep cobalt, bright yellows, pictures of tigers, calligraphy. Inside, we get caught up. Paul Carlos and me, we get carried away listening to a man play music. We have just new instrument. This is instrument called Hamra. Afterwards, he invites us to a performance, a play set in one of the many courtyards inside the Registan. It's cool, relatively, the sun's starting to set. We watch actors in colorful silks and a tale of forbidden love discovered. 
Not quite Romeo and Juliet, but still, Uzbek Shakespeare. Afterwards, we leave and go back to the bus. Now, we hadn't exactly asked permission to watch the play. We told the others, and most said okay, but as it turns out, it's just what our fearless leader was waiting for. So for those of you, I hope you guys had a really excellent concert, but you're assholes. You guys had six fun hours, and the rest of us had, you know, 18 stupid hours combined. That's going to end from now on. You know, there's been too much democracy. We had an experiment with democracy. Democracy does not work. So therefore, we're going to go back to the Turkmenbashi model. And Ted Menbashi will dictate the departure times of the bus. And if there's any change of plans, or if you run off, the bus will just leave without you, and that'll be that. So the days of the autark have returned. For that, I am grateful. So... Tedman Bashi, as he's called now, tells us when we eat, when we depart each morning. With word from on high, we drive the bus to dinner. The atmosphere is dreamlike. Water flows everywhere in Samarkand. Incandescent lamps light the tree-lined streets in front of us. It's midnight when I get back, and my room is too hot to sleep. I crash outside and think cheesy, poetic thoughts about sleeping under the stars in Samarkand. I feel like Whitman, or wild. The next morning, there's a panic. Carlos didn't come back last night. Nobody knows where he is. He was last seen at the restaurant, courting local Russian girls. But the rule of Tedmanbashi is rigid and severe. We wait until 10 o'clock, the appointed hour of departure. We load Carlos's stuff on the bus and prepare to leave him. We get on board and go. At 10.15, we find Carlos. One of the Russian women brings him back to us. On the bus... Ted leads the interrogation. All right. For, let's say we have a photograph that will be logged on the website. Let's see, let's see. Ooh, hottie. All right. Of the five women, what number, if any, engaged in sexual conduct with you, unbecoming of an officer and a gentleman? None. <laughs> Is he telling the truth? Carlos. Again, what number of women were you with last night? Answer was two. The answer was two. And that was for sexual activity. <laughs> A big hand for Carlos. Wait, wait, wait. We're not done yet. Does anybody have any questions from the audience? He's promised to answer any question. We're not going to find any answers here. Not on this bus and not on this trip. In fact, this whole issue, this entire storyline that I've been running down, is soon going to disappear and not raise its head again. See, we're now on our way to Tashkent, the de facto capital of Central Asia, and in 12 hours we'll be there. Tomorrow, we'll forget what we've been discussing, forget what we've been fretting about. This happy-go-lucky side of our trip is coming to an end. Tomorrow, we'll be in Tashkent, and tomorrow, the sickness begins. That was the first half of The Stands, a story produced by Ben Adair in 2001 for a show called The Savvy Traveler from Minnesota Public Radio. We'll be back with the second half in just a minute. But first, some thoughts from Ben about how this story, with all of its frank depiction of sexual tourism, was received when it first aired. I was really shocked because, and maybe a little naive about this too, because I didn't expect the vehemence nor, nor the personal attacks that I got from listeners. And it really says something about radio, I think, because 
You know, when you're on the air and you're talking to listeners, listeners really develop a personal relationship with you. I'm sure I'm sure you know this as, as the host of this program. And so when I got to work the next day, the Monday after this aired, it aired all over the country, there were personal messages to me on my <laughs> on my answering machine. People saying, Ben, you know, you really messed up. I can't believe that you think that. You've really, really disappointed me. And it was sort of like like my collective parents all over the country had come out of the woodwork to, to sort of tell me how disappointed they are and wh- how I've acted and what I've done. And I don't feel like they really understood that I wasn't condoning these things. I wasn't supporting sexual tourism, but it is something that exists and it is something that we need to talk about. I don't think sweeping these things under the rug does anybody any kind of service. I think, in fact, it does a disservice. So it was a little disappointing to me that people didn't get that, that people did think that I was, you know, all gung-ho about the whole thing. I'm not, and, and I continue not to be. I think that any time you engage in intimate relations with people while you're traveling, it's a very, very politically, economically, socially, genderly, is that a word? It's a, it's a fraught position, you know, and you have to be very, very careful in order to not be completely exploitative. And I think that there's no question about it that the people who were engaging in sexual tourism with locals on this trip were doing so in the most exploitative nature. And I think that it's something that we need to talk about because it happens all over the world. It happens in these countries. It happens, it happens here in the United States, too. And it's, it's a really, really bad situation. Hey, Ben, this is Cheryl Marmo in Maryland. I called to tell you that Rudy may have lost a listener um, because of the piece you did on the stands, okay, this weekend. I don't know if you just missed it and missed the point of how this would be perceived by, you know, other women, women who travel, women who are interested in the culture in other countries and how women fare there. But your piece, okay, and the emphasis on prostitution and on these guys on the bus bargaining women down, okay, was pretty disgusting. I'm no prude and I'm not stupid. Prostitution exists. But you may want to rethink this one. To check next, enter five. Delete. Six. Archive. Message deleted. There are no further messages. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. If you want to listen to this episode of ReSound again, or any of the hundreds of great documentaries we've collected over the years, log on to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. And feel free to send ReSound your questions and comments, even if you just want to ball us out. Call us masochistic, just call us. We're at ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. first all-girl rock group. Mother wears a burka, my father does it too. I have to wear a burka, the burka is blue. The sky over cobble is also very blue. The blue is from the burka, 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 blue. Blue, 
You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Now, the second half of Benjamin Adair's story called The Stands, as in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. In the first half, the tour group was all getting along, the travel was relatively easy, and everyone was in good health. But that was just the first eight days. It's day nine of Stand Trek, and we're almost through the deserts. The Karakum and the Kizilkum, the black and red deserts, are dangerous places. Scrub-covered dunes, few oases, temperatures peaking at 135 in the summertime. Little or no life. But it wasn't always like this. Legend says that before the Mongols swept across Asia in the early 1200s, what's desert now was lush. These places sustained empires, the Parthians and Seljuk Turks. Then Genghis Khan came and destroyed everything. Cities, universities, millions and millions dead. It took hundreds of years, but there are cities again. Roads and governments. Society recovered. The environment, however, has not. See, when you move that many men, that many men on horseback through an area, they deplete its resources. Genghis Khan's horses ate all the grass, all the shrubs. They created the deserts. Today, 80% of Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan is nothing but sand. But Central Asia is unexpected, and after hundreds of miles of dunes and sun and heat, suddenly... There are mountains, and where there are mountains, there is water. And water here means life. We're now on our way to Tashkent, Uzbekistan, and the temperatures are becoming bearable. Tashkent is Central Asia's virtual capital with two and a half million people, and on the road in, military checkpoints are common. Our tour bus has stopped easily a dozen times. The soldiers come on board, look at our passports, and then, unimpressed, wave us through. It's getting to be a bit too routine, frankly. See, half the lure of this trip was the danger. It was supposed to be the Wild West, you know, Wyatt Earp pulling us over and trying to shake us down. We'd show everyone how smart we are by flashing some Marlboro, some American whiskey, and conning our way through. But so far, that danger hasn't materialized, and people are getting upset. As we ride into Tashkent, we start creating drama. We start turning on ourselves. And I understand why you don't like it, but you've got to wear it. Or you can drape yourself. This is Tracy. She's number two in charge on our tour bus, and she's acting on orders from Ted, our group's leader. She's telling Glenn to put his shirt back on. See, when we each became part of this group, we agreed to certain codes of conduct. The stands are Muslim countries, so we thought a dress code appropriate. You know, modesty. What we're discovering, though, is that Central Asia is Muslim, like the U.S. is Christian. There are a few hardcore fundamentalists, but girls wear tank tops, boys wear shorts. It's 130 degrees in Uzbekistan. You're going to comply? I'll do it like this because then my back is nice and cool. Okay, that's fine. Stay like that. This sounds silly, arguing over a t-shirt, but when you're looking for trouble, When you're looking for anything, really, sometimes you'll do what you can to find it. Sometimes you'll do anything just to find what you're looking for. Tashkent, Uzbekistan is an ugly, blistering hot city. We're staying at the Sheraton. That's easily Central Asia's best hotel. You know, imported fruits, brass handles on the toilets, 
piano in the lobby, and the worst exchange rates you'll find anywhere. Upon arrival, we bribe the hotel manager for a better room rate, and as a bonus, he gives us our first dose of bad news. First, some background. That stuff about the Wild West? Absolutely true. And people are disappointed we're getting off so easy. But still, everyone knows that even if Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, the next three stands, are all safe and good, in Afghanistan, it's really going to hit the fan. One guy in our group fantasizes out loud that with just an Afghan visa stamp in his passport, he'll finally win the respect of his son and be able to score with women in bars. Which is why, standing in the lobby of the Hotel Sheraton in Tashkent, the manager's words both brighten and excite. Things in Afghanistan aren't looking good for tourists. The Taliban, the leaders of the strictest Islamic regime in the world, are really, really pissed off. See, right after we left for the stands, the United Nations passed sanctions against the Taliban. And when word reached Kabul, all hell broke loose. Militiamen ambushed a UN truck outside Mazar-e-Sharif, burning 16 bodies. Customs officers attacked 22 unarmed aid workers trying to leave the country in Termiz, hacked them to death with machetes. Termiz and Mazar-e-Sharif, those are our first two stops in Afghanistan. On the bus to dinner that night, Ted grabs the microphone. Ted's the leader of our group, the guy who, in frustration, assumed dictatorial powers on the bus just a few days ago. Ted tells us how it's going to be. Right now we're still going to get the visas because it's just good to have all the documentation you need, but things are looking extremely bad. And I would be taking a poll. Actually, if I could have a show of hands of people who, if this information is true, would still want to go to Afghanistan, please raise your hands. Okay. All right. So the final decision will be still Tracy's and I's. But uh, obviously this is a, a dictatorship now, and public opinion matters, but we'll make the call. For those What's amazing is that people still want to go. I want to go. A few abstain uh, from the vote, but not one go, hand is raised in opposition. So the next morning we go to the Afghan embassy to collect our visas. When we get there, we learn some truths. The ambassador tells us that no, in fact, people were not killed at the border. That's just a rumor. But yes, there has been a lot of fighting, and the rebels in the north have made serious advances. The UN truck was attacked, but we will be safe. The ambassador himself guarantees it. People buy this. I questioned Ted. Was all this stuff about the UN troops being massacred at the border, was that all right? That, according to him, that didn't happen at all. And my mom, called, my mom watched ABC News, and that didn't happen either. It's all part of the Central Asian rumor mill. What we do know is for sure 120 people were killed on the road yesterday in fighting. Also, we know that the Taliban are trying to consolidate their gains. However, the 14 people who were killed on the UN, they were on the Kabul-Kandahar road in the south of the country, nowhere near where we're going. So there's like all sorts of things like that. I mean, right now things look good. The plan has shifted. We'll continue on, pretty much like we've started out. I mean, but five days from now, we'll fly into uh, Afghanistan you know, to avoid the fighting. Not, then we'll fight. grab a bus uh, and zip down to Kabul, take in a few public executions, hang out with the radical mullahs, and then fly out to Moscow. Easy, right? What about you? Are you frightened? I suppose I'm a little bit frightened, but I think that Ted knows a lot about this region. You know, he's not stupid. I think if he's going, then I think it's worth going. 
So, you just trust Ted on this one? I guess so. <laughs> he said warily. <laughs> so it's settled. It's going to be tough. We're going to spend a lot of time on this bus over the next week, and we have to make certain key destinations or the whole itinerary will be shot. Still, we all agree it's worth it. We're looking for danger, remember? Afghanistan is important. The next day, we're back on the road. Stand 3, Kazakhstan. This is my Kazakhstan. Back in Tashkent, the sickness started. First my roommate Paul, then Frank, Carl, Jerry. Carl has it so bad, he's going to fly home in just a few hours. The sickness overwhelms. The group's collective libido, which had been irrepressible just one day ago, is completely decimated. I'm no exception. This is um, day, day 11 of Stand Trek. <sighs> and I am sick as a dog. I woke up at about 3 in the morning, just sick, 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 throwing up all over the place and just not doing very well. I feel like it's a good transition, actually. You know, like the easy first half of the trip is over, and now we're moving on to the more arduous, more difficult second half of the trip. And what a way to usher that in, and complete gastrointestinal meltdown. At one point, I'm so thirsty, I guzzle a bottle of orange Fanta, knowing I'll throw it up in a matter of just minutes. As I crouch over the toilet, I think, it still tastes good a second time. I curl up in a ball. I pass out lying naked on the bathroom floor. The constant drone of the BBC and MTV Asia is all that keeps me from going completely out of my skull. Then, the next day, I wake up. And, praise Allah, whatever gods can see me here, I feel okay. I can eat. I can drink. I make it down to the bus just in time for a brutal 12 hours up and over the Tian Shan Mountains to Kyrgyzstan. And it is here, in the mountains, where things fall apart. Stand for Kyrgyzstan. All right. Alice, you want, would you like to make the announcement? Because you obviously know more than I do. punch in the head? Let's go right now. Quiet! All right. Here's I don't really know why things happened the way they did. It may have been the food. It may have been the sickness. Maybe after days of diarrhea, people get tired of taking orders. Then it might have been all the time we were spending on the bus. The 12 hours to get us here to Karakal, Kyrgyzstan, were tough. But in the grand scheme of things, they were nothing remarkable. We'd been logging days of bus rides at a time. Things in Central Asia are far from each other, and transportation's your biggest challenge. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. Well, then we're not going to make it. Then we'll all die, Len. No, 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 no. We're going to have to stop somewhere en We have to rethink our timing. No, Len, we're not rethinking anything. This has been planned out months ago. Then you can stay here. No, we have to talk it over. People pay thousands of dollars for this trip. It's very clear. It's very clear. We have to talk it over. Go get your bags. Before Caracol, the facade of a happy tour group tripping through Central Asia had a few cracks. Here in the mountains, those cracks become fissures. Logistics and human frailty contributed, but the reason we fell apart is a little more fundamental. At dinner that night, Glenn advocates stopping while we're ahead. 
The argument goes, we've blown our timing already. We're not going to Afghanistan. Why not hang out here in the mountains for a few days? Why not take it easy and go to festivals and watch the Kazakh nomads who hunt with golden eagles, for Christ's sake? Let's relax. This is a vacation. Well, it's an option that Tracy and I would discuss. However, it would be up to Tracy and I exclusively. And look, it's, you know, it's sort of a free country. You guys can do whatever you want. But at this point, you know, if you guys go your separate ways, Tracy and I, and we wash our hands of you, and like we're going to have to cancel the hotel reservations in Moscow. Don't interrupt! I don't really understand the doubts now, given that I have gotten everybody where they were supposed to be on the day that was on the itinerary. I really don't understand why there would be doubt, given that there has been no disappointment whatsoever so far. Plans but are going to change. So we want to see Tajikistan. We're working no, together with we're us. We're not interested in working together. This was never Ted Rawl put this whole trip together. We're just trying to put our input in to make there's it a... No input. I there's no there's input. There's no input. There's no input. There's no input. There's always input when people are reasonable. There's, there's always no input, input when people want to work together to keep... We're not working keep... together. We're not working together. After an hour of this discussion, it's decided. We will all continue for one more day. Then we'll split up. Eight will stay in the mountains. The rest of us will drive forward. Two days to Tajikistan, then hopefully a day in Afghanistan. The timing is crucial. The next morning, we leave and head south. To the tourist yurt. The traditional yurt visit is a special tourist treat. A guide in Karakal arranges it. He swears this is not for just any group of 24 from America. We hike two miles through mountain fields to meet a family of hardened Kyrgyz wearing Mickey Mouse sweatpants and Hugo Boss hats. Their yurt, this round tent-like thing made from wood and animal hide, it stands on this cliff overlooking a roaring river. The nomads slit the throat and then skin the sheep we've brought for them. They toss the whole thing in a pot. We drink vodka as the sun goes down. I asked Glenn if he's found what he's looking for. I think this is uh, pristine. This is gorgeous. So peaceful. Is it where you Commuting with nature. I enjoyed what we did before, and now this is going to be very nice. The next morning, 16 of us are up before the sun. We board the bus. We start driving. We're still looking for something. We drive the entire next day. We track our progress on old Soviet maps. Slowly we realize the others were right. The distance is too great. The time too short. We won't make Afghanistan. Our timetable, our itinerary, the only thing cementing us together is beginning to disintegrate. Obviously, even if we got there at 9 a.m. tomorrow, we'll still make it to Dushan Bay, but only if we drive overnight one night. Oh, then there's no problem with that. Do you think people can take, like, tonight on the bus, tomorrow night in the yurt, the night after that on the bus, and then the night after that, flying overnight to Moscow? If you remember at the beginning of this trip, a lot of people were bitching and complaining about how it wasn't tough enough, it was too easy. So, you know, this is what a lot of people want, and they want you to say you're doing it. We desperately clutch at straws. We hatch plots involving chartered planes and military transports. The bus keeps driving. 
We go all night. The drivers, the badass Kazakhs who aren't scared of anything, they think we're crazy to navigate these mountain roads in the dark. In the morning, we wake up, still driving. We reach our goal, a town called Osh, at half past 11. We're too late. We never made it out of Osh in Kyrgyzstan. We were stranded there. Two days later, Kyrgyz Airways delivered us to Bishkek, the capital, where we found those we left in Karakal. They actually had a great time in the mountains. They saw a temple dedicated and the Golden Eagle Hunters. They were interviewed on Kyrgyz television. Ted was true to his words. He didn't help them through customs or into Moscow, but they walked right through. When we got to Moscow, one of our group was immediately deported. Her visa wasn't in order. There's hubris in travel. I mean, the very idea that you can go wherever you want and get inside a place. Whether it's driving to Afghanistan or searching for an authentic cultural experience at the tourist yurt, it takes a certain mentality to think that you can go halfway around the world and get what you want. That you can expect what's going to happen. It reminds me of something Ted's wife Judy told me back at the border to Uzbekistan. She said, Americans, especially white Americans, take up so much space, the way we walk on the ground like we own it. She said, Americans are fortunate, and it's sad that we take this for granted. Everywhere we go, we have the same attitude. I say we here because I'm just as bad. I didn't have particular things I wanted to happen. I mean, sure, I wanted to see Afghanistan. Who do you know who's been there? But I was depressed for about a month after I got back. I picked fights with friends. I broke up with a really nice woman for no reason, really. Then, slowly, I figured it out, and I was as arrogant as everybody else. See, I wanted to change my life. I wanted to have this great experience that would affect me for years to come. What travel's supposed to do. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound like I'm blaming anyone, because I had a lot of fun on the trip. I'm really glad I went. It's just... I was looking for something, too. I got back and thought the whole thing was a waste. I really want there to be a moral to this story. I want to toss some glib phrase and throw it all into perspective, but I can't. Instead, I'm going to end here with another conversation Judy and I had close to the end of the trip. It's as much of a conclusion as I can come up with. Traveling is like a narcotic. It's an escape. It's like going to the movies, but more intense and all senses are engaged. So it's a distraction. We have a goal, it's very focused, it's very immediate, and it's very attainable. Whereas if you're living your life where you live, it's not focused, and it's probably not attainable. So travel for you is like an escape from chaos? No, not really chaos. More um, the uncertainty. I know it's kind of fine. Uncertainty is like is not knowing what's coming next. You may know what you're doing in like the next five hours, but what are you going to be doing in your life five years from now? Where do you want to be? What do you want to do? In travel, your goals are usually to get from point A to point B, and all you're really doing is seeking experiences, one way or the other. Well, how does that build into like what the what the meaning of life is then? I mean, in kind of the ultimate pursuit or the ultimate quest for knowledge. You see, that's what the whole thing. What is the meaning of life? Is the meaning of life the quest for knowledge? Is that what it is for you? Because you know you'll never know everything. 
40 years ago, I'll be done with That's right. There's no point. It's never done until you're done. Well, this trip is done, and I'm done too. This is Benjamin Adair. The Stands, produced by Benjamin Adair for The Savvy Traveler. We got a hold of this piece when it came in as an entry for the Third Coast International Audio Festival competition in 2001. When we told Ben that we wanted to replay it on ReSound, he was a little reticent about the idea since the world has changed so drastically since it aired. We thought that added to the appeal of the piece, the idea that the story was now a time capsule of sorts. After all, this piece could never be reproduced today. This is a window to a time that no longer exists, especially in this part of the world. But I think in regards to us, too, I don't think any, any Americans would, would as cavalierly go off to this part of the world anymore. This was a time in America where we thought we were safe, period. And just as this area of the world has changed so much over the last four years, five, five years now, so have our attitudes towards tourism, where we go, why we go. I mean, people are just much more reticent to travel abroad these days, whether it's out of security concerns or they're worried what others might think of them as Americans. I think ultimately that's very, very sad. And I think ultimately that does us a disservice as global citizens, as Americans, as people who are trying to live in this world. Yes, it is a dangerous world. Yes, it is, you know, a place where you do need to be careful. But at the same time, I think right now, after 9-11, we're all emphasizing our own security and our own safety a little bit too much, mm-hmm. you know, and, and our need for safety is closing a lot of doors that really should still be open. So in that sense, I think it is very much a time capsule. I mean, yeah, we were dumb, but we were, we were naive and we were innocent mm-hmm. in a way. You know, we just, it, it, we had no idea that people were out there who hated us so much. So looking back on this whole quest for danger aspect of the tour, where some people were feeling like, oh, this isn't dangerous enough. We want to do more. We want to risk more. How do you reflect on that now that it's post 9-11 and we're in a whole different time? Well, I think post 9-11, the whole thing seems very, very silly. You know, these are very dangerous places. You know, at the end of the story, we get caught up in this sort of crummy small town in Kyrgyzstan called Osh because there was an insurgency. These fighters had come out of the mountains with Kalashnikovs, and the the Kyrgyz security forces were having a really hard time repelling them. At the same time that we were over there, there were four trekkers in Kyrgyzstan who were kidnapped by the same insurgents, and they had their lives threatened. They eventually escaped, but, you know, at no small risk to themselves. For us at the time, it was all just like an Indiana Jones movie. It was as though we were actors and stuntmen, and we didn't really think anything could happen to us. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're on a trip. You've just left America. How can you be in danger? But the fact of the matter is I was completely naive, you know, seeing what has happened since then. We had no idea how much peril we were actually in, and it, you know, makes us seem, makes me seem, makes me feel like I was really, really just dumb. And lucky for us, nothing really happened too bad on this trip. And I don't know, it's just sort of, maybe maybe it's that old saying that God smiles on fools and young children. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't young children, so I'll let you decide what exactly was going on. 
As a listener, there are a couple of places in this piece that um, make you a little uncomfortable, where people are arguing, where they're definitely not coming off as probably looking their best, sounding their best. Um, How did the people in this piece react when they first heard it? The tour in the end divides into two groups, sort of the people who go with the leader, Ted, and then the the rebel alliance who decide to branch off and not follow the, the, the rest of the itinerary. Those people, the rebels, they all really loved the story. They thought it was great. I didn't go with the rebels. I stayed with the group leader and on our attempt to get to all the stands. And pretty much everybody in my group decided that the story painted them in an unfavorable light. The people who got angriest, though, were the people who I talked to or who I mentioned about in the section of the story about the sex tourism and the sex trade in these countries, which at that time was still developing. It was small. It was isolated to the big cities. It was mostly in, at that time, the wealthier countries of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan. That's all changed now with the U.S. military presence. The U.S. military has really established itself in the capital of Kyrgyzstan, and so the sex trade there has really, really exploded the last couple of years. So, in other words, if I'm understanding you, the guys that were primed about exploring the sexual tourism aspect of the of the trip were fine with it until they got back and heard how it would come off to the public. Is that right? Until they heard the piece, yeah. They thought that, you know, they didn't see anything wrong with their actions until maybe they got home and, and saw themselves reflected in a mirror and saw that the, the reflection wasn't particularly flattering. But everybody knew that I was recording, and everybody knew that that this was going to be replayed on public radio. So it was a little shocking to me that people reacted the way that they did. But, you know, then again, listening to the tape, they said some pretty shocking things that, you know, if I had said the same things, I wouldn't want all of America to hear. So given how much um, friction there was at certain points in the trip, I'm wondering... Were there things that you had to leave out or what ended up on the editing room floor, so to speak? I mean, what what is there that we don't know? The one thing that I sort of regretted in making this piece, and I, at the end of the story I sort of do some backflips to try to make up for it, is that it was really, really fun. And even though it sort of sounds like we're having sort of a bummer time, especially towards the end of the trip, we were cracking jokes, we were having a good time, everybody was laughing really, really hard. And that's the one thing that, listening back to this piece, I'm a little worried that the listeners don't get, is that, you know, even though it ended sort of in a big disaster, it was the most fun, fabulous disaster I've ever been a part of. At the end of the piece, you and this woman, Judy, have a little discussion about sort of the philosophy of travel and what it does for you or actually what it doesn't do for you. And I'm wondering, it's, you know, five years out, Um, has your philosophy of travel really changed at all? I think it's taken me quite some time to really understand what Judy is saying at the end of the piece. When she first told me that, I interpreted it as some sort of um, existential angst about the state of travel. You know, you always throw so many expectations on it and then can't help but not measure up. Mm -hmm. And I think now, after doing a lot more traveling in my own life and getting older and wiser, et cetera, et cetera, I think what she's really talking about is the sense of travel as an escape from your everyday life. If you live your life sort of on the rat race, um, going to work, coming home, sleeping, then travel for you becomes this amazingly loaded proposition. It's, it's an escape. It's 
you know, you don't have life-changing events in your everyday life, so you try to cram everything into your two weeks or your one week or even your weekend trip. And I think listening back to that now, what I really think Judy is arguing for is less trying to emphasize the travel and more more trying to live that way in your everyday life so that you don't depend on travel for life-changing experiences, so that you have the magic or the experience of the exotic when you're going home from work or over the weekend when you, you know, go to some part of town that you haven't been to before or when you go to some part of the country, you know, that's just an hour's drive away. And I think that it's less depending on travel as your milestone or as your big break from reality and more trying to incorporate those desires and those goals and those experiences into how you live your life every day. I think that's very important. And I think that she was right on about that. Bennett Dare, producer of The Stands, a story produced for 2001 for The Savvy Traveler. Ben was actually the producer of The Savvy Traveler in its last year before it went under in 2004. He said the show couldn't sustain its funding after the hit the travel industry took post 9-11. There are lots of radio stories that, quote, go stale, as Ben put it earlier in the show, pieces that capture a certain time and place that have since disappeared. But rather than call them outdated and shove them in a drawer, we like to bring them out for you to hear. What's the point of documenting things that never change? Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.